Good evening, good morning, good afternoon. Welcome to another episode of Two Developers Down Under. After a bit of a break, I am returning once again with my childishly cantankerous partner in crime, Kai Koenig. How are you doing today, Kai? I'm doing fine, Mark. How are you? <sighs> I'm not too shabby. I'm just getting old. Cool. We're in the same time zone. We are in the same time zone. doesn't happen very often. That's awesome. <laughs> Unless we uh, end up going to the same conference together. Yeah, but there's no conference happening anytime soon that That's we're going That we're going together. to. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you were, you were yet another person who was trying to get me to go to Camp JS in uh, Gold Coast. Well, I wasn't trying to get you to go there. You know, I just realized um, while I was at PyCon, someone yeah. told me about it. And I thought like, oh, that would be cool. And then I figured out it's exactly the weekend I'm leaving here. So yeah. for people who don't know, I'm actually at, in Queensland at the Gold Coast. Oh, so you could have stayed for like an extra two or three days. Just oh, one day would have been enough, actually. Oh, that's hysterical. <laughs> it's one of those things where you think like, yeah, well planned. <laughs> Very well planned. Now I've got a few people who are like, you should really come, you should come. And I'm like, eh, yeah, I don't want to be doing Node. I don't know. It's not necessarily about Node, you know. No, there's actually a lot of front-end stuff there. It does actually look yeah. like good conference um some of the some of the uh web gaming stuff also looks pretty interesting as well mm, okay how's your web gaming thingy going or yeah, you know really been on it in ages i want to get back into it i really really want to get back into it um at the moment i'm playing lots of games that's research that's the way i'm thinking about it right. so that is because um steam has a sale currently steam right has a sale yeah so yeah i have this theory that if i become an indie game developer then i can um I can claim them all as research, and that's that's why I can just buy games and play games, and I don't know where the money's coming from, but that's my theory. That is such a clever strategy. Yeah. I think so. I think what I'll do is I'll just buy games and then claim back money from the government, and that'll give me money to live somehow. Yeah, I think... <laughs> Yeah, I think, I mean, you don't even have to publish a game, you know, it, it, it probably would be enough, you know, in case of an audit, that you can show your efforts and your blog posts that you tried to develop a game to be able to claim the stuff you bought on yeah, Steam. I think so, yeah, maybe, maybe, oh, maybe I should claim it, actually. I'm very sure that will work, actually. <laughs> Look, I've, I've thought about making games, so that's enough. Anyway... <laughs> Yeah, whatever. I mean, I had a look at the sale, actually. It looks really good. I need to... Um, I bought nine games already. Nine? Shit. <laughs> I just need to find a way, you know, where I can download all the games that I've purchased in the next few days uh, without breaking the bandwidth that I'm getting for free in the oh, apartment I'm staying here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But I've got a friend um, who I'm, whose cats I'm looking, looking after um, for the next few days, and she's got... Um, like 200 gig, I think. So I might just take oh, my yeah. laptop and, you know, purchase a few games while I'm watching the cats. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I had I had a bunch of stuff on my wish list and a lot of old games, actually. I think I only spent about 100 or 120 bucks and I got nine games for about that much. That's quite good. But even even, even new games are reasonably cheap. I, I had yeah. a look at it and I saw like... Lens, there was, too. It was like 16 bucks, 17 bucks. Yeah. There was Football Manager 2013, like the latest one. And it was yeah. like... 15 or 20 or something like that, which is really good. Yeah. Now there's some good stuff out there. And I, 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 I love a lot of, uh, wow, Tomb Raider at the moment, down from 60 bucks to 20 or 17.49. Oh, I might pick that up. Hmm, okay. 
but I love a lot of indie games. So a lot of indie games are half price, and there's a lot of old games I haven't played for eight, like I've wanted to play for ages that I haven't got to. Like I'm playing Fable Three at the moment, which is a 2011 game, but it's lots of fun. So I think I picked it up for like ten dollars or something. Fair enough. Alrighty, so enough game stuff. Um... Oh, I have to. I have to bring up one game. I have to bring okay. up one game that I'm no, playing. Hysterical. Um, it's called Rogue Legacy. Okay. It's, it's this sort of throwback to like remember Castlevania. Those sort yes, of games, yeah, it's a throwback to those sort of games with a twist, right? So the whole castle that you go through is procedurally generated and it, it's randomized, and you have all these things you need to kill. But every, it's really hard, and you can like buy new swords and you level up your castle and all that stuff, and that's great. But every time you die, you play as your ancestor, so the guy, like one of your children. And so you get these strange mutations. <laughs> it's hysterical. So you might get like dwarfism or gigantism or dyslexia or okay. IPS, <laughs> which has really weird. Like, so you've got different classes. You can be like a mage or a, or a barbarian. You kind of pick as you go through. But you know, if you have IBS, you fight your whole way through the game. If you have nostalgia, everything's in sepia. You might be colorblind, so everything's black and white. <laughs> Oh, that's actually an interesting thing. Yeah, it's hysterical, and it's a great fun game to play because as you're playing it, you don't mind like dying kind of sucks, but you don't mind because you know that you're always working towards somebody like what's the next generation going to bring. It's really fun, so I just want to throw that out there because it's a good fun game. Okay, I what's the the title again? It's uh, oh, what was it called? Rules <laughs> Legacy. Um, how did I just completely blank on it? Oh my god, I did. I just completely blanked on it. Uh, I did. I just said it, and it's just gone from my brain. Um, what are my games? I'm I'm, I'm right here. Here we go. Uh, all games. Uh, here we go. Rogue. Rogue Legacy. Rogue Legacy. Okay, I'll have a look for that. Is it um PC only, or is it like cross platform? It's meant to be cross platform. Oh, cool. Moment, but I think it's PC only at the moment. Yeah, Mac and Linux yeah. later. Oh, okay. I'll, I'll stick a link in our notes just for just for later because it's hysterical. Yeah, I'm playing lots of little games like this. And I love it. They're great, they're great little, great little indie games. Okay, moving along. Um, we still haven't done what happened today. No, that's a surprise, you know, because usually people expect that to happen right away. Actually, we're yeah. like. How many minutes into the into the into the recording? Oh, crazy! So I found three things. Um, not of, nothing of it is like extraordinary, super awesome, but one yeah. is quite at least a bit funny. So the first thing I found is um, today is Bastille Day in France. Okay. Um, it's basically the French National Day. Okay. Um, you know, storming of the Bastille in the French Revolution, July fourteenth. Right. Yes. That around, that's the whole. Um, uh, Musical, uh, Weber. Yeah, uh, yeah, I've seen it. Uh, 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 around that time, French Revolution. Yeah, Les Misérables. Yeah. Yeah. The movie, the movie was actually quite good. Did you see the movie? I didn't see the movie. Strangely enough, I've seen the play. Yeah. I actually quite liked it. Yeah, the movie is quite nice too. Actually, it's like a musicalish made movie with a lot of singing and stuff. Okay. Anyway, we digress. Okay, so that's the first one. Then um, today's the birthday of Anna Bly, who used to be the Premier of Queensland until last year. Oh. Fair enough. The only thing I've got that's only vaguely interesting is the MP3 format was named on 1995. It's the 18th anniversary of it. 
Ah, okay, cool. So that's something that came from a research institute in Germany, I think, back then, wasn't it? I think you're right. Yeah, like a Fraunhofer Institute or something like that. They invented MP3. What does Wikipedia say? Yeah, the other thing I found um, today in, uh, let me have a look, in the 1970s, I think, at some point, the U.S. got rid of the large denominations of um, U.S. currency. So right. like you know, 500, 1,000, 5,000, and 10,000 dollar bills got basically kicked out of the currency system. Okay. I didn't even know those existed. Yeah, see me neither. <laughs> cool. All right. So nothing that exciting happened today. No, it's kind of a quite average day, really. <laughs> it's an average. As far as days go, apparently, today is average. <laughs> <laughs> Alrighty, so what are we going to do today, or what are we talking about? What are we talking about today? So I had a I had an interesting idea for a podcast, at least I think it was interesting. Um, uh, probably lots of people saw this, um, uh, a well-known, a very well-known uh, IT company, ThoughtWorks, um, back in May, put out a document called their uh, Technology Radar, which was really interesting. Um, they wanted to sort of expose what trends they were seeing um it was uh, techniques, platforms, tools, languages, and frameworks that they wanted to basically to say these are great, all these are things we're using, um, these are things we're stopping using, um, all that sort of stuff. Um, there's a link in our show notes. Um, if you haven't actually had a look at it, have a look at it. It's very interesting. They've got a PDF where they go into a lot of detail on on each of the things in that. Um, and they so they, they they've broken it out into each of those those techniques, platforms, tools, languages, and frameworks, and then they break it out into adopt, trial, assess, or hold. Um, so when they say, uh, give people some context and they say adopt, they say, we feel strongly the industry should be adopting these items. Um, we use them when appropriate trial worth pursuing. Um, it's important to understand how to build up this capability and enterprises should try it on a project that can handle the risk assess. So basically exploration. So understand how it will affect your enterprise and so have a look at it and hold, they say, proceed with caution. There'll be dragons here. Um, but. It's interesting because they they don't seem to offer a category that is named like get rid of it now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I suppose you know if you've got to be pragmatic about it, like if it's in a if you if you've got a system, it's legacy, whatever, or you're already using it, and the decisions are made, you can only go forwards. You can't rip it out. Yeah, you, know, I you can only do. really proceed with caution. You know, like just be careful, dude. Um, and I, I think that's that's pretty fair. So. It's a really interesting read. I recommend everyone actually go have a look at it. But I was like, hey, Kai, we should do one. This sounds like fun. So I, I harassed Kai and harassed him and harassed him and said, okay, you know, like let's let's talk about the techniques and tools and platforms and stuff that we like and we use and all that sort of stuff. And we'll probably disagree on some of it. And uh, we can sort of talk through each of them individually as well and uh, see what the hell comes out of it. Yeah, so we've broken down the whole thing into four sections. We've got techniques, yep. which is pretty much like, I don't know, approaches. Yeah, or like how, how you would even. do things. Yeah, yeah. processes. Or architectures got, even, but yeah, 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 it sort of fits that. Yeah. Then we've got platforms, which are pretty much like software or you know infrastructure platforms. Yeah. Then we've got tools, which could be anything really from an IDE over like deployment tools, yeah. over oh, some to to some other stuff. And then we've got languages and frameworks, which again is quite wide. It could be you know like actually specific implementations of a language. It could be a language in general. 
could be a development framework. So we've got quite a few things in there. So, uh, yeah, I thought we'd kind of go through it and chat about each of them and see where the hell we end up. Yep. Sounds good. Should right. we get, get started with techniques? Well, we'll start at the top of the document. And um, we'll either, what do you reckon, put this in the body of the part, the, the, the episode, or you reckon we'll just link to the, a shared version of the document? Uh, we'll have a think about that, I think. Um, okay. We do. We can, we can make the document read-only, I think. Yeah, exactly. Maybe yeah. easiest that people can just link to the document and then they can do what, you know, look at it in whatever way they want. Sounds good to me. Okay, so... Um... Okay, so the first two we've got in there are things we basically agree on, pretty much. We do, um, strangely enough. Yeah, infrastructure as code, in parentheses, this DevOps, and yep. automated deployment. So, I mean, that's obviously what you would want. It's, yep. it's kind of a no-brainer. It might, in some instances, if you deal with, you know, legacy applications, it might be hard to achieve that. Yeah. But that's where you want to be, really, if you can. Yeah. So um, people aren't aware, so infrastructure as code, you're looking at some sort of tool, um, we'll, we'll, and we'll go into specific tools, um, that basically sets up your entire infrastructure for you without you having to touch it. So um, something like Chef, Puppet, Ansible, Salt. Um, there's another one I can't think of off the top of my head. I'm sure there's more. Um, where you can basically um, – there's, there's a great example, actually, by um, – there's a wonderful article by, and I've forgotten his name, he's the author of Vagrant. Um, he talks about automation and how much he loves automation, where he says, I accidentally once locked myself out of all my machines, um, all our production machines, which was really silly, but because I had all my automation scripts set up, I could actually reconfigure and reset up the entire infrastructure, which was over 30 machines, within half an hour, basically the click of a button, switch it out with no downtime. That's like exactly what you want. You know? That's nice, yeah. Yeah, like it it should be, you know, just like, you know, it doesn't matter. It's a machine. You could kill it and recreate it. You know, like something goes wrong with that machine. You just create a whole new one. Who cares? You know, it should be that simple. It shouldn't have to be, you know, oh, we're deploying. It's going to take us five hours to configure a server. That's just nuts. Um, it's it's interesting, though. You know, like when you look at that whole concept, you'll yeah. find that it's obviously very, very well, you know, established in in the Linux land. Yes. Or in, in cloud land and cloud slash Linux land. Yeah. It's a thing, you know, if you want to do that infrastructure as code thing, it's a thing I find really hard to achieve if for whatever reason your client wants to host on Windows or has to host on Windows. I, yes. Yeah. And now, and there, there are some, some things, you know, if you do. I've never even know, looked at it, to be honest. If you do .NET, for example, I mean, you have not that many choices, but actually running on Windows. And there are obviously you scenarios. You can run 101 on, on, on Linux. Yeah, you Maybe. could, but but then you've got like you know like um some other infrastructure things like SharePoint or whatever people yeah. want to do, and it has to all tie together and live in a big Windows blurb. So you can certainly do some things of that with Azure, I think, but it's in general a really hard thing to achieve for that type of um, environment. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. You know what? To be honest, I wouldn't even want to uh, run Windows servers. I haven't run Windows yeah. servers in years, and it like just oh, that would. I I remember the argument. I mean, this is when I used to talk about this stuff with people who ran Windows servers, and their big argument was, "I have a GUI, it's great." But I think now I look at it and I go, "Why are you doing it by hand? That's crazy." Exactly. That's what I. That's the debate I constantly have with um, some of my clients who basically live in that Windows world. Yeah. 
And it's like, well, why do you have to configure websites through clicking around in a UI? Why don't you just write, you know, 10 lines of configuration? Have code, yeah. Put, put it in an Apache con file, and you can even copy it's and paste so that, yeah. make two changes, and you have a new site instead of spending another 15 minutes setting up a new site through an IDE and clicking yeah. around and doing what you have to do. You want it to be set up so that, you know, uh, for whatever reason, you know, AWS goes down, you could hook yourself back up on Rackspace if you wanted to, you know, um, or, or, you know, you could take so much of your application and just shift it somewhere else. Yeah, but um, I mean, that's that's a discussion. That's a pretty much a philosophical discussion, you know, for people yeah. who are really into that Windows environment for hosting and for running web applications. It's, I don't know, it seems to be the way they want to do things. And that's just like, okay, as long as I don't have to, do yeah. it, it's fine. Whatever. Yeah. Um, I'd be interested if anyone does any automated stuff on, on Windows, and I know that I think Chef handles it. I'm not sure about other ones. I know certain um, auto, uh, DevOps stuff that runs, like daemons or agents, tend to handle it a bit better. Um, yeah, it'd be interested to hear your experience. So why don't, we, why don't we move on? Yeah. So then the next one is from you, 12-factor applications. And I have to admit, I just had a brief look at the link. Why, why yeah. don't you talk about I've, that? I've, we've actually talked about this a bunch on this podcast because I keep talking about it. Um, it's actually a website written by the guys at Heroku about how to structure your applications. Um, and there's actually a whole bunch of stuff in here. It's almost like a, it's, they talk about like one code base, um, explicit dependencies, storing configuration in the environment, um, automated deployment and building, how to store, like do concurrency and, and scaling, um, parity between development pro and production, um, how to deal with logs, all that sort of stuff. So it's, it's a lot of stuff, but, um, it's really like, Reading that and just a lot of that stuff has really influenced the way I, I want to architect applications. Um, and so it's it's really sort of that whole very lean, um, small, multiple instances working in conjunction so that you've got lots of things that are able to be scaled out. And if one part of it breaks, it doesn't bring down the whole system. You know, stepping away from the whole monolithic thing, it's all that sort of fun stuff. So, yeah, I, I, we've mentioned it before, I'm sure, um, and gone through it a few times, but it's definitely... Uh, it's a, big, it's a big fan of mine. So it's pretty much a collection of best practices. Yeah. That article, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. And, it, and it's interesting reading it from the perspective of it came from Heroku, considering that Heroku, like, they're, they're dinos, as they call them, um, so your, your little virtual a areas to run stuff in. You know, they're very low re they're low resource. You know, you, you're talking, uh, actually, I can't remember how much RAM. It's either 256 or 512. I can't remember off the top of my head. It's sort of one CPU. You know, you're not going to stick a whole monolithic app on there. That's just, it's not enough. So you really want to be running like three or four or five of them, you know, um, maybe different doing different things with workers in the backgrounds and all that sort of stuff. Um, and so it, it makes sense when you sort of think about its context as well. But I think that makes a lot of sense in terms of overall application architecture as well these days. Okay, cool. Fair enough. So the next two ones are quite similar, actually. I think we yeah. just named them differently. Um, I don't know, actually. Okay, so you, let's go to yours first and we'll see whether or not mine makes sense. You say JavaScript and dependency injection. Yep. I basically want to have a way, and that's you know why I think, think it's like similar to what you said. I want to have a way of writing independent JavaScript modules that do different things, and then I want to have like a platform that oh, yeah. makes use of those modules whenever they are needed, basically in a certain instance. For yep. for example, you know something you would do with RequireJS, and I think that's kind of where you are going with modular JavaScript. Yeah, most, in I would guess. Yeah, just pulling in the bits you need. Um, 
Though it is interesting with with uh, you sort of get the more full stack framework, sort of like Angular, for example, which I absolutely adore. Um, but you also have really interesting stuff like uh, JavaScript components and things like that coming out, where it's starting to get a bit more nitty gritty. You know, just pick yeah, what I mean, you want. Yeah, AngularJS is an awesome framework, but but for some things, it's just a bit too much sometimes. Yeah, and you can still write. Like, I think jQuery is a bit too much. Well, jQuery is not. A, I mean, that that's a whole different debate, right? I mean, when yeah. I, whenever I hear people talking about like I'm a jQuery developer, I build all my front end apps with jQuery. It's like, yeah, you're hopefully just doing DOM manipulation with it. If you think that jQuery is like your real front-end framework, then yeah. maybe you need to think about things. Yeah, I mean, but I mean, jQuery does so much. Sometimes it's like you don't need all that, you know? Do yeah, you I agree. Binding? Do you want just CSS style changes, you know? You can start really... It's the, the, the stuff's out there now that it can be like... You can really pick and choose the bits you want and sort of... Yeah, but, but you know, they, they started to make that more modular, right? In jQuery 2.0 or whatever it is, 2.1 now, I don't know. Mm. They, I mean, they factored out a lot of the legacy stuff, like the IE6 support and all those things. And I think you can actually bundle your own version of jQuery now by saying, I want this, this, and that. That's nice. And, and it creates you like a... Uh, like a um, like a custom download. I'm not 100% sure, but I'm pretty sure I've seen something being mentioned somewhere. Fair enough. Okay, so the next one after that is one that I put there in... You put um, it in Adopt, and I put in it in File. Yeah, that's interesting, actually. So it's the concept of single-page web and mobile applications. Yeah. Um, I think it's absolutely fine to use that because it has established itself as a really good and reliable way of building applications. So when you, when you say single page, you mean, okay, so there's, there's obviously a lot of client-side rendering. Um, there's let, let, let's say I have like a big index.html or index.cfm or whatever yep. file. Some sort of index file. Yeah, and that basically contains all my markup, all my views, and the actual application logic is all done in JavaScript. Yeah, see, I say trial on that because um, there there are certain things in there that that worry me a little. Um, seeing a lot of research in staying away from client side rendering um, for performance reasons. So when hitting a particular page, you've seen Twitter backwards and forwards. Twitter did a whole bunch of uh, client side rendering and then backpedaled on it and basically went for performance reasons. It's just nuts. We're getting much better load times if people we actually serve up html to the, to the client straight away and then we you know lay our javascript over the top rather than just sending a little bit of javascript and sending up the template and getting it to do all client side um that's one concern i have the other one is sort of just the power of the url like having a proper url um which is very easy to lose when you have that single page web app yeah fair enough okay i get that so you would have to deal with your url anchors and hashes and basically yeah um yeah. And, and, like, spidering and all that sort of fun stuff as well. Like, that sort of worries me a bit. Now, there are places where that's not important, which is fair enough. Like, if you're doing a whole admin section and stuff like that, spidering is not a big deal. As long as people can bookmark, that's fine. Um, so, yeah, those, those are a few things there that kind of worry me a little. Um, I'd probably – I'd want to be pushing up, you know, if you're, if you're sending up uh, data or, or stuff or HTML, um, I'd probably yeah be, be concerned about performance client side, especially when you've got people who are running really slow machines and you know they're going to be running slow machines. So um yeah I'm, I'm more of a I like it I think it's really good I can see a lot of the web going that way, 
but it definitely for me it's more of a trial than an adopt because I just there there are aspects to it that worry me. Okay, fair enough. So we don't have anything in assess in this section, but we have got one on you hold. One. You skipped one. You skipped one. Oh, I did, I did, I did. Sorry. Yeah, we've got agile and adopt. It's kind of a no-brainer, isn't it? Really? Well, it's an interesting one. So I've got a question mark next to mine because um, I can honestly say something that it seems to miss me by a lot of the time, and um, something we've been talking about adopting more where we're doing stuff is agile. But I've never really kind of done agile. I don't know how I've managed to miss it in like 12 or 15 years of how long I've been doing this. Um, now, here's the interesting question for you. When you say Agile, do you mean Agile with a capital A or Agile with a small a? I mean the concept, mean the, the rough, oh, well, I mean the, the concept of Agile, whatever flavor of Agile people might prefer, right? So if I don't care if anyone is, you know, preferring, for example, Scrum and I want to do it in a more formalized way, or if people want to run some sort of a, just a really lean, lightweight Kanban type of thing, so, I'm... Some sort of bizarre hybrid of the two? Yeah, or some sort of bizarre hybrid of the two. Okay. I mean, okay. that's fine. I'm not, I'm not prescribing, you know, some... Just you checking. Have to, you have to do it like the scrum way, whatever. Um, even though, you know, in some environments that works really well, that's, yeah. that's fine. But I just mean, with, with Agile, with that capital A as it's in, the, in our document, I basically mean like, not waterfall. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's fair enough. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Actually, maybe we should maybe we should put waterfall and hold. That oh, that's a good idea. Yeah, that water, a good we'll, idea. Add that, we'll add that in. And you yeah, know, like I, I'm I'm partnering with a few people who are agile consultants. Yeah, and we've seen actually so many really good results from teams we worked on introducing agile concepts. Yeah. You know, again, that could be Scrum, that could be uh, Scrum, that could be Kanban could be a mix of both it could be just some you know loose lean ideas and it's it changes the way how teams work together and how organizations can succeed actually it's quite quite impressive fair enough fair enough no that all sounds good um okay so moving yeah we didn't really have anything in assess for whatever reason so really, we've got one thing on in hold, which we've sort of already talked about here, which was sort of hand-built infrastructures and unique deployments. Yeah. And I mean, as we said before, you know, putting it on hold or in the category hold doesn't mean you, you know, you need to get rid of it right away, really. And it's yeah. for a lot of people to get rid of it. Yeah, we've got hand-built stuff. It's, it's, yeah, exactly. it's, actually, it's an absolute pain in the rear, but yeah, we have it. Some, some of my clients have lots of hand-built infrastructure. Yeah. Um, it's just what it is, you know, and deal with it and make it as smooth as possible and maybe migrate things you can mm. into a more automated way, but that's really what it is, basically, you know. I would probably say when you look at the all the infrastructure out there, the vast majority is hand-built unique. Yeah, I think you're right. And it's a worry. I, it's something that worries me. I just know how how hard it is, and if you ever had to rebuild it, you ended up going, why? Why is this happening? And you end up with situations where it's like, this works fine on server number one, but on server number two, it doesn't. What the hell's different? And because it's not automated, you, you can't test it. And I've got um, one particular scenario. I, luckily, I don't have to maintain any of those machines, but, you know, like, I've got a, I've got a client with, like, um, 30 slash 35-ish servers. Oh, wow. And... and um, 
they're all VMs living on a you know private cloud basically. And that cluster is running called Fusion. And it's running called Fusion 9. And if we all remember how well called Fusion 9 is currently being served with patches and updates, mm. it's quite interesting. You know, you have those oh, yeah. security bug fixes where it's not a JAR file, but where it's like a zip file and you have to unzip different things into different places and then, you know, like you overwrite something accidentally and you have to copy files manually out of that directory first. I've been, before. I've been using the uh, automatic updater. Guys, I think that's a lifesaver life for CoreFusion. The, the, the third-party yeah. framework. I've seen that yeah. in the past. I've used that um, a few times. But, you know, if you have to do that manually um, on 30-odd servers, what basically happens is, you know, you have an admin who's doing a few per day because that person has to do a few other things as well. Um, and then, you know, after a week, that person is finished with your whole cluster. And then the next security patch is already out there because someone found another leak in code, uh, another hack in code yeah. 9. You can, if, you're using the, if you're using the updater, it's not too bad, but because um, you, you can SSH multiplex and you can do like parallel SSHs yeah. if they're Linux servers. It can be a very painful pro, oh, very yeah. painful process to do that. The other, yeah, depending on the the servers you're on too, you could also um, take like snapshots like AMIs and whatnot, and then replicate those out. But yeah, it's a nightmare. Yeah, it's a nightmare. Okay. Alrighty, so let's move on to platforms. Platforms. Um, oh, it looks like I went first. So um, something I've been using a lot for uh i wrote it as jetty slash mizuno um so jetty is a very lightweight j2e uh servlet container um that i've been using for heaps of stuff and for particularly solar deployments um so i should put solar on here why don't i put solar on here i'll put solar on here um you know that you use jetty so much because i had a discussion with um some of the rilo guys yeah a few weeks ago and we we're talking about um you know like what Platform are people using? Are people running below Raylo? Because Raylo Express comes on Jetty, and yeah. you know Raylo installers come on Tomcat. And I was actually making a very strong point, like saying, like I know, don't know anyone who's using anything on Jetty in production. <laughs> and, on Jetty. Yeah, it's interesting. It's okay. right. Like I mean, we run Solar on it. Um, our, our Solar collection, Solar's a search server. Um, I put it in Adopt actually because it's amazing. Um. It's, it's, a, it's an absolutely awesome project and stupid fast. I mean, we've probably we've only got two thousand records in there or something like that, but it runs in like fifty megabytes. It's it's tiny and it's rock solid. It doesn't go down. Um, never had an issue of it. I think the only times it's gone down was a bug in Solar. Mm, okay. Um, there's that, and then Mizuno is uh, basically JRuby uh, running JRuby uh, um, apps or rack apps, so, so like uh, Rails or Sinatra, which we're using Sinatra more than anything else. Um, and yeah, we use that for running just lightweight. We've got some, a whole bunch of lightweight REST web services, and Jetty's perfect for it. It doesn't go down, nothing. It's beautiful. No, I love Jetty. Jetty's fantastic. It's just a nice, lightweight, really simple, lean servlet container, and it just runs beautifully. Okay. No, I don't have anything against Jetty. The, the discussion I had with the Rilo guys was pretty much like, is it a good idea to push out Rilo Express on Jetty? And then when people want to, you know, get real, they have to basically, well, they start relearning everything on Tomcat. Um, but that is a different discussion, you know, 
then I think also that goes back to Rilo and how it's built and what it is and you know um when you're when your cluster mechanics are basically tied into your server, then running something like Tomcat makes sense because then you can take advantage of all the stuff that's in Tomcat. Whereas if your cluster mechanics is hitting outside of your app, running something like like Jetty and then running libraries to cluster everything together can also make more sense. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So there's Ooh. that. Okay. Then we've got a yeah. whole bunch of like non-SQL databases in that adopt list, right? Should we maybe talk about them in one block? Yeah, because some of them, some of them we agree on, some of them we, uh, we, uh, don't. The first one we agree on is MongoDB. Yeah, that's kind of fine, you know, very established. Why do people thing. hate on MongoDB so much? I don't get it. I love MongoDB. Really? People hate it? Yeah. Oh yeah, there was a whole everyone hates MongoDB thing for a long time. Uh, okay, whatever. Yeah, love MongoDB. It's great. You gotta know how it works, but that's true with everything. So, I mean, then I've put Couch in there because I think Couch is a really nice. I've never uh, used Couch. Okay, so. Give me, give me, give me this. Why would you use Couch over MongoDB? Where's the application? It's a, it's a different metaphor, you know. Couch is very document oriented, and Mongo is not necessarily. Couch also allows you to actually write kind of embedded apps, which is quite cool. So you could. That's interesting. You could basically take a Couch instance and write JavaScript code that lives in the instance, which is your app. So it's basically you get one thing and it's your app with we the code storage okay. right, back, right away. That's probably, that's probably the big win there. I can understand that. So that's a quite cool thing. I've got a, I've got a friend, for example, who wrote like, um, you know, a, um, an app that tracks his movie database and all the DVDs he owns and all that stuff basically. And it's a little self-contained thing. You know, it runs in the browser basically and it has all the data coming with it. It's quite neat actually. And the, the history of Couch is actually, um, I don't know if you knew that, it's actually Lotus Notes. You know, oh, when you, they? yeah, the guy who did, or the, one of the guys who actually started Couch, he came from the Lotus Notes team, basically. And a lot of the concepts in how Couch treats documents and what a document in Couch is, is very similar to Lotus Notes documents. I mean, obviously, in a very much more modern way. But some of those basic ideas have been taken over. Okay, well, that's interesting. Now this is a this is an interesting one. Uh, moving on from here, graph databases. Now you and I have them in. Do we have them in the same spots? Well, I've got them in. I've got it in adopt, and you've got it in assess. I've got it in assess. Yeah. My, my comment, why I've put it in adopt in the document is, if your application is right for it, and that's really what I would want to stress, right? If you have to to replicate or to 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 build a data model that is a graph and that yeah. is really suited for graphs, I would right away use it. You know, if you talk about I don't know. Okay, you're the math guy. Can you explain what graphs are for people who don't know? What a, I graph know what a graph is. is. You know what a graph is, but when some people may not. Okay, in a graph we basically have notes and we have edges or you know like arrows between the notes. That's essentially what it is, right? And if you um, if you have data that is kind of, uh, kind of like leaning itself towards being, being built as a graph, like, I don't know, a friend relationship, for example. Yeah, social right? networks is always the, the greatest. So social networks is the easiest one, but there are other things, you know, it's just like anything that has unidirectional or bidirectional connections between mm. certain entities that can be mapped as a graph, 
they basically can be really nicely been 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 constructed as graph databases. Yeah. And Neo4j is one of those typical examples. I think it's probably the most prominent one. Yeah. I wouldn't I wouldn't use a graph database if I have to force my data into that into that model. Well, that's an interesting question actually. When would you like everything really like every relationship? This is this is something I was actually thinking about, and every relationship that you ever described in either Mongo or or a relational database could be put in a graph. I mean, it could. It could. How would you map? Let's say you have a, I don't know, um, customer shopping cart relationship. How you, would you map it as a craft database? The no, it's just edges. It's a customer node with properties, uh, products. Yeah, with, fair enough. You could. I mean, it's, yeah, you could it's, do a, that. it's an edge with how many? They're pointing in one direction. I mean, that's that's easy. Yeah, maybe maybe the criteria needs to be. How you want to traverse through your data, and not that's, how your data is structured. Actually, if if you that's appropriate, yeah, it, it's if, you to, if you want to do stuff where it's like show me show me all people who have um, who have mutual friends. I mean, that's almost impossible in almost anything else. You know, yes, so basically you're, you want to be able to go in a loop and just say, here's my friend. My friend has a friend, and that friend knows me. That's crazy. Yeah, that's going to take you ages to process through, especially having millions of records. And a graph database, that is stupid simple. Yeah, in, like in, in an online shopping scenario, it might be something, you know, like where show me all people who have ordered those products and who like those other products and, you know, that type yeah. of thing. Well, when you start getting into recommendations, graph databases yeah. are crazy. Like that's awesome. They, they, yeah. they can do stuff so much faster than anything else. And that's a, I think that's an ex, that's a hugely exploding space at the moment because I started doing some research into it. That graph databases, the recommendations beat the hell out of just about anything else. So that's interesting. You know, if we talk about recommendations, what about you know graph databases versus technologies like um, Mahout and you know Hadoop and that type of stuff? Yeah. So you can do it. Um, this is something I've been researching a lot recently. Um, you can do it. Mahout uses a bunch of different persistent backends um, from the last time I looked at it. A lot of them are like if you're doing long-term stuff, it's like databases and whatnot. Um, if you're looking at this stuff, there's a couple of interesting projects. There's, um, I want to say it's GraphDB. Okay. No, GraphLab. GraphLab. Um, they've got a C-based implementation of a graph database that they, they've got. Um, that apparently a lot of people are using for um, recommendation engines, and apparently it's blowing people out of the water. Um, there's another interesting project I've been looking at uh, called Rico4j, which is very, very, very new. It runs on top of um, Neo4j, which is a recommendation engine that sits on top of it. It's meant to be sort of a, a generic recommendation engine that sits on top of Neo4j. Um, it looks really interesting as well, and it's meant to be able to, like, the, the Graph Lab comes forward and says you can run recommendations on your laptop. You don't, okay. you don't need a Hadoop cluster, you know. It's it's so much faster. Um, Rico4j, yeah, again, seeing like recommendations happening on your laptop. It, it, but that's, I mean, it's very, very new. Um, so I think it's going to be something that as people start looking into this stuff more, like graph databases are going to start making a lot of sense for this sort of stuff. Um, it's pretty cool. I, I've got it more in a, in a um, what did I put it? I think I put it in assess. Um, it's, it, for me, maybe it's even starting to move up to a trial. Um, because because some of this stuff is so new, it kind of worries me a little. Um, and it, I don't know what the I don't know what the foot guns are. 
Mm, okay, fair and enough. That, and that kind of worries me. But that may just would, be experience yet with it. I would actually be. Uh, it would be interesting if we. Um, we should have a chat to Dwayne Nickel. I don't know if you know him actually. He's from Canada. He used to work at um, Adobe like a few years ago until one of those, you know, oh, Adobe lays off gazillions of people again. Well, yeah. um, and he is doing a lot of stuff with graph databases nowadays. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We should he, was, he was really active in the whole um, web services team at Adobe, you know, yeah. doing stuff with um, XML, SOAP, enterprise architectures and enterprise um, SOA architectures. Yep. And he's doing quite a bit of quite a bit of work with Neo4j. We should actually try to convince yeah, him to come on our podcast. Yeah, yeah, I'd love to talk to him about it actually. Yeah. Because brain, because it's something I'm I'm looking at more and more. It's um it's actually a really really interesting space. Okay. Okay. So um Nginx on here. I put I put Nginx in there um as adopt and I put Apache IIS on hold as well. Yeah, that's an interesting one. So for me, I mean, Apache's been the web server of choice when I needed it to sit in front of something, which is not all the time. Um, actually, less and less these days. But um, I'm curious about why, why, why that decision. What, like, why? Well, a 2s is for me whatever because I don't use Windows. Um, but I'm curious about why Apache's down the bottom and Nginx is up the top. Um, I find Nginx is much more performant and much more modular and lightweight than Apache is for HTTP server purposes. Okay. And obviously, I mean, not everything that Apache can do right away can be easily done with Nginx. I, you know, I would totally agree to that. If you want to support some, I don't know, some crazy protocols or, you know, some technologies that are not yet basically supported in Nginx, you might have a problem and you might have so to use So did you Apache. have any particular pain points with Apache? Were you like, oh, this thing's driving me nuts? Mm, it was, I was using it both on Linux and on Windows. And on Linux, it's a reasonably smooth, smooth ride. Yeah. On Windows, it's a big pain, a massive pain. On Windows, <laughs> on Windows I actually found it's even slower than, a, than IIS. You know, for yeah, a lot of, it's like, Maybe half or a third of the so, performance. So, what's for you seeing the speed issues on, like HTTP pages or like static files, like CSS and JS, or um, pretty much everything. It doesn't really matter, you know. As soon as you deliver something, um, it would be reasonably slow. And if you use it with um, some forwarding technology, so you know, let's say if you were using it with ModJ Run for Cold Fusion, or if you're using oh, yeah. it with um, even normal proxying to like any other backend technology, it's just slower, you know. I, but I mean, to be fair, IIS 7 and IIS 7.5 in, you know, modern versions of Windows Server, they have done a lot of good things in there. It's And that's why IIS, I think, is faster than Apache, because what, what Microsoft did is they put, um, they put some IIS modules into the Windows kernel, mm. So it's not in the user space anymore, essentially. So it's, you know, it's really deeply built into Windows. And that makes it much faster than Apache can get. Um, I find Nginx is just like a really, really nice lightweight thing. And again, okay. on Windows, they have, they have problems in some ways. I think in, on Windows, there is a limit of how many threats Nginx can, yeah. can run. But that might be, you know, like, 
a thing that actually they just inherit from Windows at the end of the day. But on Linux, Nginx is just like awesome. Okay. Yeah, I think um, I've I've never really run into anything that really sort of freaked me out with Apache um, in that way. I think a lot of See, it's interesting. A lot of the way I've been building and structuring apps, like static stuff doesn't come out of, like for the consumer, the static stuff doesn't come out of Apache. It comes off a CDN. So that's not, not yeah, a web server. Mm-hmm. Um, if I'm using CF, then it comes to Apache because that's just easy. If I'm using Ruby, um, if it's a straight web service, then I don't even worry about it because I'm not serving anything else. So it just goes straight to straight to Jetty or Mizuno pretty much. Okay. Uh, and then it just... You guys are running JRuby most of the time, right? You're not running native Ruby. No, yeah, running JRuby. Okay. Yeah, and we'll, we'll talk about that more as we get into languages. Yeah, no, I don't. We don't run. I think we have some client side tools that run native Ruby, just because we don't have a choice for like okay. pressing JS and whatnot. Um, so yeah, I mean, the web server for that side of things is is less of a concern for the stuff I've been building. Um, so okay, well that's interesting. I was curious about why you why you went that way. Um, and then we've I, got, I mean, hmm, sorry. Go on, now go. On. Yeah, I was going to say the next section because we talked about Solar briefly yeah, we already. Solar. Yeah, we did. Next section is like you know SQL databases, and we've got two in there. It's funny actually. You've put Postgres into trial, and I put MySQL on hold into hold. Yeah. So I put Postgres into trial because I keep hearing a lot of people using it, especially in large scale deployments. Um, the big thing that definitely put me in there um, was being able to alter tables with columns and indexes without locking up your entire table. Um, although the new version of MySQL actually solves that problem, which is great. So you can do live updates, which is a godsend because that was driving me nuts. Um, Postgres also has a lot of really interesting stuff like GIS stuff, NoSQL stuff. Um, it's pretty interesting. I just kind of... I, I, I actually should probably put it in... Um, uh, You're breaking up a little bit, actually. Sorry, my headset just reset. Let me say that again. Uh, um, probably, probably should put it more in assess than trial, um, just because I haven't really looked at it properly. Um, but there's just so many people I know that run so many systems on Postgres and love it that I was like, okay, we should really kind of look into that a bit more. But I am curious, why have you put MySQL in hold? Um, I have I have put it on, in hold mainly because of its tie into Oracle. Because I feel quite uh, strongly that... I, I'm, I'm happy with the technology itself, yeah. but I I feel quite strongly that Oracle is going to pretty much wrap it up. Well, then should you put MariaDB in here somewhere? Yeah, potentially. You know, maybe maybe MariaDB should be in trial. I have... Uh, the thing is, I have personally not used it yet, no, so I can't but, really yeah. say anything, you know, either good or bad about it. Um, I would... I would agree with you, you know, when it comes to Postgres, that a lot of people say really good things about it. But yeah. again, I haven't used it myself yet. So yeah, I, don't... I haven't used it either. Um, I mean, really, honestly, the, I think MySQL I use now, it's RDS on Amazon. <laughs> like, you know, mm-hmm. okay. not my okay. problem. They, they host it, they run it, it's great. Um, but um, so there's that. Um, no, but, I'm, you know, we're, we're also we're not looking into the technology only, right? We're looking into... Mm. into the whole ecosystem of the technology. And basically, yeah. you know, when you look at what Oracle is doing in general, in terms of Java and, you know, MySQL and all the yeah. stuff that's from Sun, you just want to, you know, say like, oh, you guys are shooting yourself in the foot all the time. Every yeah, time. we could have a whole podcast about 
stuff like that. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think actually the interesting thing is the only thing that I can think of that still is within Oracle that was an open source project is uh, VirtualBox. Yes, are you using that actually? Because I'm, uh, I'm, I'm no, I've been using VMware for ages for some crazy reason. So I've, yeah, me too. I do everything on VMware Fusion in my case. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, OpenOffice moved, uh, Jenkins moved, now Hudson. Um, OpenOffice is LibreOffice. Uh, well, the other ones, are, there's a whole bunch of other ones I can't think of. Uh, MySQL went to MariaDB. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it just keeps going. Huh, interesting. Okay. Um, the other one I've got here on trial is uh, Source Labs. Um, Source Labs is hosted functional testing, uh, which I think is really interesting. Um, rather yeah. than build your own infrastructure for doing, uh, you know, automated mobile and website automated testings. Um, they sort of set that up for you. So if literally you want to be able to go, I want to run this on every browser, on every OS, you know, they do video, they do screenshots. It actually looks really awesome. Um, really, really, really awesome if you want to do that stuff. Um, I think it's actually pretty freaking cool. Uh, especially if you just, you know, so often it's like, oh, we have functional tests, but they only run in Firefox or only in Chrome. We don't do IE because we run Linux servers. You know, and then somebody's like, well, we've got this bug in IE, and you're like, shit, i got to go and open up, like, cross-browser testing or a VM or something so, so that I can test it, you know, and I can't automate it. I have to do it by hand, and it just kind of sucks. Yeah, um, fair enough. Yeah, and I, I keep hearing good things about them. I've met some of the people that work there, and they seem like cool people, so it's something I really want to trial, actually. Okay. Uh, moving on to assess. Yep, you've got two things in there, Redis and Hazelcast. Yeah, so I don't even know what Hazelcast is, to be honest. <laughs> Redis, uh, Redis is like something as I've been doing more Ruby, like every Ruby developer I've ever talked to has been like, oh yeah, we run Redis for doing queues. Um, it's a key value, it's an in-memory key value store. Um, I think it's in-memory. I don't know if it has file persistence. It probably does. Um, but it's interesting because um, the, they refer to themselves, or sometimes people refer to it as a data structure server. Um, keys can basically be strings, hashes, lists, sets, or sorted sets. Um, so you can actually do in-memory data set manipulation like on the fly. It's kind of cool. Um, a lot of people use it as just a, a push a push and pull queue. Okay. We're doing worker stuff, but it looks pretty interesting, and I'm like, I, I should really look into it properly because it looks like it could be really useful for other stuff. Um, Hazelcast is a in-memory data grid, so it's a JVM uh, open-source clustering and, and and highly scalable data distribution platform. So not only does it do um, clustered caching and stuff like that, it's also got clustered implementations of things like queue and array and things like that. So you can you can do trans um, communication and transportation of data across a cluster really easily. It's pretty sweet. Um, something we're going to talk about a little later on called Vertex uh, runs on Hazelcast. Um, it's okay. Pretty nifty actually. Um, I'm just looking at their website now. I haven't come across come across yeah, it at all. Yeah, like distributed queue, set, list, map, um, distributed concurrency locks. Um, uh, topics for public subscribe messaging. It's it's pretty neat. It's got a lot of stuff in it that I'm like, oh yeah, that's that's pretty cool. That is pretty cool. Um, it's got it's got a lot of stuff of you sort of like well, you may have necessarily maybe used something like eHCache in a clustered mode or something like that. I think a lot. Of, I'm seeing a lot of stuff people do Hazelcast because uh, it gives you so much more. Okay, I need to have a look into that because I actually use eHCache in a clustered 
environment for a few things. Yeah, it's pretty. It's pretty neat. It's pretty neat. And um, again, something I'm hearing a lot of interesting stuff about. So uh, I stuck it in the SS because I'm like, okay, I need to. I need to learn more about this. It's it's cool. Hmm, okay, I I can potentially looking at the website, I could potentially see a see an interesting use case for that for a project I'm currently working on right away. Interesting. Yeah, the yeah. so Hazelcast is pretty neat. Um, we talked about Neo4j and Assess, so. Yeah. Um, the only thing I have in here on hold, um, I basically wrote down anything monolithic. Yeah, that's a very generic thing to say to say, obviously, but it has valid points. You know, like as soon as you're monolithic. It's hard to distribute it, obviously. <laughs> yeah, scaling is such a pain. Um, or, or, or you can do it, but it's like you've just got so many resources that you're just using that you don't need to use. Uh, just, uh, uh, don't like it. Okay, so let's move on to tools. <laughs> that's my, that's my sophisticated, mature response. Uh, don't like it. <laughs> uh. Okay. Why was your dog barking actually a few minutes ago? I have no idea. She probably oh, okay. has no idea. Who knows? Could have been anything. She barks and stuff. That's Next fine. Sleep again. Okay. Uh, all right. So tools. Yeah. Got some fun stuff in here that I really like. Yep. All right. Um, well, I guess we're going to list. Okay. First one. Ansible. This is something I need to write about. Ansible's awesome. Um, Ansible's pretty much the first DevOps scripting language that I've ever really picked up. Um, I was looking at some ages ago, but I started looking at Ansible, and it's meant to be just a really lean, lightweight way to do development, um, develop stuff, so automated creation of stuff and automated deployments as well. It runs straight through SSH, so there's no daemons or agents you need to install. Um, okay. It's really neat in that all the core code's written in Python, but due to its modular architecture, basically you can write anything from a bash script to just about anything that can run in a single file, and as long as it outputs JSON at the end in the right format, you're golden. Oh, that sounds nice. So it's crazily extensible. It's even, I've, I've committed a few things to it, um, some vagrant stuff and whatnot, and a couple of bug fixes. It's even like, even I can write Python for it, and my Python is awful. Um, <laughs> just because I've never really written it. So, I mean, most of the stuff in it, or a lot of the stuff in it, that you can you can use to extend it. It's really like it's basically a single executable file. Um, so you can start you can really extend it and play with it and do stuff. Um, uh, I ended up writing a Vagrant plugin, so we'll talk about Vagrant in a second. But basically, it creates VMs. I wrote a Vagrant plugin to tell Ansible, hey, these are the IP addresses from my VMs. So Ansible knows how to wire things up. Mm-hmm. Um, that was really simple. It was so simple to do. It just it's like output JSON in this format. And Ansible was like, oh, now I know. Thank you very much. Sweet. Um, no, I love Ansible. It's really easy to hack on, and it's really easy to use. I've even just started using it for um, provisioning my local machines. <laughs> so I've got oh, all cool. my okay. files and also setting up, um, like, what stuff. I've got I've got some bash scripts to say you're a secondary machine or a primary machine, and then it runs different. They're called playbooks. Um, but playbooks are just YML files, so it's just YAML. Okay. So you don't need to know Ruby or you know any proprietary stuff or anything like that. It's just YAML. It's like down a page. It's really easy to read. I love Ansible. I think it's awesome. I actually think it's absolutely awesome. I love it. I love it. I love it. Okay. Uh, moving on down from there, Vagrant. Vagrant is also awesome. And should we talk about the third one too right away? New Relic. Well, okay. So I probably should explain what Vagrant actually is. 
Yeah, that makes sense. That would make sense. <laughs> the people, Vagrant's been around for ages. Um, Vagrant's a way of, uh, pretty much most of the time, it's a way of setting up dev database, dev VMs um, through a scripting file. Um, we have, I've had VMs for development, um, and sharing those around can be a pain in the ass because they tend to be gigs and gigs and gigs of size. Yeah, they're, they're massive. Yeah. They're massive. And it works. It's not bad, but it's massive. And then you end up getting into this whole, oh, we need to upgrade this thing so everyone follow these steps, and you end up getting handmade stuff, and everyone's system's a little bit different, and it gets really yucky. Yep. Um, Vagrant's like, and this is what got me into Ansible as well, Vagrant's like, here's a Vagrant file. Here's my DevOps scripts, which are the same DevOps scripts I'd be using in production, but I'm just using them in development. I'm going to point them at my VM, and I go Vagrant up, and it goes, oh, I don't have a VM. I'm going to create one, and I'm going to provision it, and boom, you're done. And then if you start hacking on it, or you break it, or something goes on, you go Vagrant destroy. I'm going to kill it, and I'm going to create it again, and boom, I have one all over again. And it's awesome. So what are you doing when it comes to actually uh, keeping keeping VMs that are out there, like dev VMs, consistent? Yeah. Let's say... Um, Let's say you've got like you, you built one with Vagrant or whatever, yeah. or manually it doesn't really matter. You share it with you know another person, and now you've got that change that is just a little difference, but you don't want to basically destroy and redo it from well, scratch. Vagrant, Can Vagrant, you track like differences or you know yeah. changes in the VM with Vagrant? But, but it's not even that. It's about your provisioning. So whether you're using Chef or Puppet or Ansible or whatever, you know everything should be idempotent. So you basically say, this is what I want on the machine. And then everyone's machine should be the same. They go Vagrant up when they turn it back on again. And it goes, I am now going to, you know, if they have to like specifically say provision now, fair enough, you let everyone know it's communication, everyone can do it. Um, but it should just be a, you know, it should be part of your DevOps script. You know, one guy's working on one aspect of the code and he's like, I need to upgrade our solar servers. He writes a DevOps script and says out uh, an email going, hey, guys, I've written the DevOps script. It's part of the thing. You know, next time just run Vagrant Reload or Vagrant Up, you know, if your machine's turned off. Next time you spoot it back up, it's going to configure it for you. Let me know if there are any problems. Boom. Mm, okay. Yeah. You know, that's and that's where it gets really simple and really nice because then, you know, you know, everyone's machine is the same. There's no yeah. special cases, and it's like yeah, fair enough. Yeah, two thumbs up. And yeah, the guy behind Vagrant just started doing consulting and whatnot. There's now VM providers for um, so if you use VMware rather than VirtualBox, which you used to run on, you can do that. They work great. I've been using them. Um, it's kick-ass. It's absolutely kick-ass. I love it because um, you VMs now just become disposable, um, and I think that is a brilliant, brilliant way of looking at them. Cool. Cool. New relic. Yep. New Relic is a awesome, awesome, awesome monitoring, uh, alerting, uh, performance monitoring system. Um, it's got a free version. It's got a paid version. It is kick-ass. It is seriously kick-ass. It's got a whole plugin, so you can uh, look at everything from Node to Java to Ruby. Uh, to, I think they do PHP off the top of my head. They have a whole plugin system, so you can even put in your own special metrics. So there's integration with things like like bizarre things like Sengrid and um, what other stuff. There's a heap of them. Uh, you can even bring in Apache logs if you want, um, all that sort of stuff, um, just so you have a single dashboard for performance. Um, it's crazy good. It's crazy good. If you're running JVM stuff, you can do real-time profiling just with a click of a button. Um, New Relic is kick-ass. Cool. About it. It, you know, it's quite interesting. I mean, when you look at... When you yep. look at a lot of lot of the the stuff we talk about in this section, I mean, there are two like two exceptions to that that we get to quite soon. 
but a lot of those things are kind of like online services in some way. Yeah. So, I mean, we, we're pretty much seeing that a lot of stuff is moving into online services that people, you know, used to do manually before, right? That's quite, yeah. quite a big change in the industry that it's currently going through. Well, I mean, it's sometimes it's just so much easier. You're like, why should, I don't want to, it's so much cheaper for me to just build, buy something than it is to build something. You know, someone else's, it's somebody else's problem rather than your own. And I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. All right. So, so the next one are two IDEs, actually. Um, oh, yeah. IntelliJ and Sublime Text. Yeah. And IntelliJ, we agree on Sublime Text is just for me. So I basically found I use IntelliJ for a lot of stuff. Yeah. The where I don't use it that often is if I just want to edit a few files quickly. And then mm -hmm. I kind of resort back to Sublime Text. And Sublime Text has some like really unique, nice features, you know, when it comes to selection modes that I quite it's enjoy. Kind of, it's kind of Vimy, isn't it? It's well, it's Vimy with those selection modes, but it's still a nice UI, you know, it's still not like oh, yeah. Vimy, Vimy. <laughs> really badly for me. So, um, yeah, I, I used Sublime Text for quite a few things, and um, I find myself actually doing more and more with Sublime Text and CFML files um, and use IntelliJ more for other things because the CFML support in IntelliJ is getting pretty much worse and worse, whereas Sublime Text is quite good. Fair enough. Eh, when it works, boy. Yeah. I still use IntelliJ all the time. It works. Then we've got Pusher. What's that? I don't know what that P is. Pusher is a really, really cool um, hosted service for real-time notifications. Oh, yeah. And it's basically using WebSockets, and it falls back to, you know, some other, you know, like um, things like a little flash thingy or that can track, track um, communications if WebSockets, for whatever reason, are blocked. But I use Pusher with a lot of clients. Whenever we need to, you know, have kind of notifications being pinged back and forth. And it's literally like a 10-minute job to integrate it, and it's so nice. Cool. All right. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, then I've got Raygun IO in there um, because I use that a lot for error logging. Oh, and yeah. We had, um, we had, like, JD on the podcast a while ago talking about that. Yeah. Um, so that's a really nice system if you want to use error logging in the cloud and don't log into, you know, sending yourself an email when an error pops up. And the support for various technologies has actually advanced quite a bit. So there are pr providers for Raygun for pretty much every language you could think of now. And there's obviously a generic one as well. Yeah, if we wanted to go into websites that are awesome... Um... Since we're doing it, PagerDuty and Pingdom for alerting. Oh yeah. Okay. Those things are yep. awesome. Pingdom for making sure things are up. PagerDuty for alerting people in the right times so that things were meant to be like, hey, go fix this. Yep. Don't think Fair enough. What's Paper Trail? Paper Trail. Oh, Paper Trail is awesome. Um, uh, Paper Trail is awesome. So, if um, especially when you're doing uh, stuff that's on command line and stuff, and you want to be like, I want to have all my logs in one place. So I can see them and I can search them and I can do alerts on them. Okay. Paper Trail is the way to do that. So Paper Trail works on ah, what's the thing called? Let me find it. Uh, here we go. If I wanted to add systems, am I logged in? Oh, I am. That's all right. 
uh, Isis Log. Um, so if you're using, um, it's, it's again, mostly Linux. Um, if you're using something like Heroku, you can kind of hook it up. Oh no, Windows has it too. Oh nice. Um, basically it's like you send all your logs to just one spot and hooking it up is really easy. Um, so you can actually say, okay, you know, here's my output from this web service. Here's my CF log. Here's everything. And it all goes to one spot. It's crazy fast searchable. Um, so you can just type in whatever you can set up pre-built filters. So just show me this. So if you just want to see certain events in your system, but what's really cool about it is you can set up alerts. So it's like, if this exception happens, send me an email. Or if it happens five times within an hour, then send an email. And then you start hooking okay. that stuff up with like PagerDuty and whatnot. And you start going, oh, okay, if this happens five times in an hour, there's something wrong. You need to go have a look at it. If it happens once every so often, whatever weird shit happens. But um, you can start doing cool stuff that way. And it's a great way of just going back in time and saying, okay, what happened? And so you just like, I just want to log everything and then send it to Paper Trail and I don't worry about it. And then I have a full record of everything that ever happened all in one spot without having to jump between 30 different servers. Okay, fair enough. Cool. All right, so that's all we've got in Adopt. Then we've got a whole bunch of things in, in Trial and Assess and Hold. So in Trial, I've put in brackets. Yeah, what um, are you liking about that? I've, I've never looked at it, I have to be honest. I think brackets is probably the best thing that came out of Adobe in the last two years, to be honest. Um, for the people who don't know it, it's um, an open source, very lightweight IDE, mm. written with web technology in like an app frame, essentially. Um, so it's cross-platform, runs on Windows and Mac, and I'm pretty sure Linux as well. Yeah, they've finally got Linux working. Yeah, and what I like about it is the light whiteness and that you can really easily write your own extensions. And not only like you know things like syntax highlighting or like code completion, but really interesting functional extensions. And because you have to write them in JavaScript, you put them into a certain folder, you can easily tie them into... Um, into you know the menu bar it's really straightforward and i feel they are with that they are on a good way um like i said i think that's the best thing that has come out of adobe in the last two years um if, if they're going to make money with that in the long run i have no idea but it's a really really good app and i've put it into trial because i'm not really using it as an ide yet for yep. you know my main development but i think it might happen at some point in the not too far future. Okay, it looks like their Linux version is, what do they say, needs work. There you go. We need help bringing brackets to Linux. Okay. Oh, fair enough. See if you want to do that, Mark. I don't know. <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't seen anything. I haven't actually looked at brackets in a really long time. But the time I looked at it, I was like, oh, that's kind of cool, but nothing jumped out of me. Is oh, my God, that's amazing. Um, so... Uh, yeah, I think I think mainly the extensibility concept is what what it what does it for me, you know. I can write plugins for IntelliJ. So yeah, I, I agree, you know, and we've done that obviously in the past. Yeah. But then, you know, writing a plugin for IntelliJ involves writing it in Java, which is a bit more involved than just whipping up some JavaScript code, putting it somewhere, you know, in a yeah. folder, pick, gets gets picked up right, automa right automatically right away. That is kind of neat, really. Somebody wrote something for uh, to writing plugins with JRuby for IntelliJ, but I digress. Oh, okay. Somebody did it somewhere. I'd have to find it again. All right. So then we've got a whole bunch of stuff in SS. Yeah, because uh, there's also some interesting stuff happening in this space. So let's start with Docker. That's something we both both of us put in there. And I came across Docker just briefly, like two weeks ago, when I was at uh, one of those Yao events. 
Oh, yeah. They do, like, Yao Nights. And the guy who did a presentation there, he was mentioning Docker and has just pretty much had a brief look at their website after, after that. It seems quite interesting because it seems to be, it's a way to spin up and run, like, mini Linux. Really MPMs, yeah. Like, you know, like, maybe have one process or do, do, like, a really specific task and then you just spin it up, it does its job and it goes down again, basically, in, like, five seconds or ten seconds or yeah. something like that. So it runs on top of LXEs or Linux containers, um, which I've had my eye on for a long time. But what's sucky about them is, is basically configuring them, getting them running, is is sort of part black magic and part artisanal. I don't know what. Um, I've never been able to wrap my head around it properly. Ubuntu did some work to try and sort of make it a bit simpler, and they do, but they don't, you don't really get the control. Um, Docker is just a lovely high-level language for being able to create LXC containers, which are really lightweight VMs. Um, that run basically are inbuilt right into the kernel for, for, for Linux. Um, so yeah, I mean, you could run them as your own VM sort of network. You could run them again as lightweight processes, as you just said, and everything's contained. Um, and you can be very specific. You're like, this gets two, you know, two CPUs and this much memory, or and here's its, here's its disk space and all this sort of stuff. It's, it's pretty cool, actually. It's very cool. And it's, um, I can, I can definitely see it, um, being part of people's DevOps stacks. And I've even seen somebody build like a, a, a light Heroku. You know, with some GitHub, you know, some Git scripts, you know, for deployments that you could push it to, you know, um, a deploy to Git and it would pick it up and then it would run it in, in some of the tools they've got and run the build pack and, and fire it up. It didn't do like cross server stuff, which is why they called it Light Heroku, but um, mm-hmm. it ran it all on one server. Okay, interesting. Pretty cool. Yeah, so yeah, Docker's one to look at. I, I, I haven't think so too. Yeah. had a need to do LXC stuff, but I could definitely see it sort of getting used more and more as going forward. Okay. So what else do we have in there? Packer. That's from you. What's Packer? Yeah, Packer's interesting. It's by the guy who wrote Vagrant, actually. Um, it's sort of a nice way to create multiple machine images from a single source configuration. So um, I see the space for this more um, for creating, like, base images. So if you're, like, the base image I want to use on Amazon, I want to be able to use locally for development. So I want to use Ubuntu 12.04, um, but with some sort of agent installed, and everyone's going to use it the same thing. And I want to create that and hand it off to everyone. Maybe it's got some sort of agent for doing deployments or creating itself or doing something. Um, but then I'm like, okay, so I've got one that I've got for VMware for myself, and then it also does the AMI, and it also does one for VirtualBox for those guys at my development team that use that. Um, so it's pretty cool in that way. So it does some really neat stuff that way. So um it's yeah so rather than having to build your ami you know then go build your virtual box one then go build your vmware one you know it just does it all in one go and that's pretty sweet and then build your box from that for vagrant and again it comes back to like handmade tools um this this automates that so it's pretty it's pretty neat i'm pretty excited about it actually okay I've put salt in there um and i have to admit i haven't really looked deeply into that i just came across salt um at pycon for the first okay. time um, but it looked like a really nice way to automate things again. It's one of those DevOps environments yep. where you, you know, do everything from configuration management just to... Just use man. Just use Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'll... Like I said, I just put it in assess because I want to have a look at it. It looked interesting when I, when yeah. I went to that talk. Fair enough. Um, I've got Gradle in here as the next one for assess. Um Pretty much because sometimes if I ever want to build a Java project and I need to build a tool for basically doing jar dependency management, um, 
I don't want to be writing Maven if I can avoid it, because I know how many people have pains with it. Um, but I need something to do it. And I don't know anything better. Do you? No, besides not using Java, because you have Jar dependency issues then. <laughs> no, I don't know. There's sometimes probably... you have to, sometimes you don't have a choice. I know. I mean, I agree. There is, I don't think there's any good way um, of doing Jar dependency management in general. Probably Gradle is one of the better ways or the best way. Yeah, um, yeah. as well and things like that. But um, yeah, I mean, Gradle, I think actually it's quite funny. I've seen a lot of people, like a lot of the Java stuff I've seen gravitate that way. Not a, I haven't seen a lot of people go towards Groovy, but I've seen a lot of people go, oh, Gradle's quite nice. We'll use that. Okay. If we're doing our builds, and I've seen a lot of people do that, so it's been it's been pretty cool. Um, you've got a bunch of stuff in hold, which is our next one, so what, what, what tools have you got on hold there? Oh, I've got a whole bunch of IDE stuff and on hold, like DreamViewer, for example. And I mean, that is only for, from, from a development point of view, right? If you're a designer... Dreamweaver might have its merits, but I see way too many people coding in Dreamweaver still, which oh, really? always drives me nuts. It's just like, <laughs> really? Why would you use Dreamweaver to code whatever, JavaScript, ColdFusion, PHP, I don't know. Like <laughs> <Huh>? <laughs> I don't even know what Dreamweaver looks like anymore. Oh, I've been touched it in so long. Yeah, I just find it shocking. But, you know, like that's why I put it on hold. Maybe it motivates yep. a few more people to go away from Dreamweaver. Then I've got Eclipse on there. That's my personal take on it. I know that, you know... I haven't touched that in years either. Uh, Eclipse and, and IntelliJ are kind of like two competitive plat- or com- yeah, competitive platforms. Yeah. You, you know, build whatever or run whatever IDE you want on. I just feel Eclipse gets more and more monolithic and enterprisey and corporate by every version and slower and blurdy, blurrier. So I, I personally would, you know... Re- really look good into why you use Eclipse and not some other, you know, not some other tools. Um, from a deployment and automa- automation point of view, we pretty much agree on a lot of things there, right? I mean, yeah. I've put in FTP deployments, which both of us actually have done. <laughs> and, and, and I've also put in Maven yeah. because I'm, I think Maven is kind of, it's not a really good solution to be honest. It's just like, it's better than and, and it, does a bit of a different job than Ant does, to be mm, fair. It does, because it's, it's got that whole build structure thing. Yeah, and that whole repository model. But I just find Maven is... Uh, you know, really, I, the only times I've used Maven is, is, again, for package management, like for job management. Yeah, I used that, I used Maven quite a lot back in the Flex days, to be honest. Mm. Um, because you could actually... You could actually use Maven to, you know, include all the different Flex SDKs. You could oh, yeah. then... Like have your backend in, let's say a Java backend with BlazeDS or whatever, oh, you yeah. know, all that stuff and tie it, tie it together. But Maven is quite often used in, I don't know, really the wrong way. I don't know. I just don't like it. So, you know, for me, it's a, a hold. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. Okay. Well, that sounds pretty good. Oh, it's quite exhausting doing that, isn't it? Yeah, no. <laughs> I feel like, Oh, I need a break. All right, so there are languages and frameworks. All right. Do you need Do you need a break? Do you need five minutes? No, no, it's fine. How How long are we going for already? Like, I have no idea. Four, right? I think we're I think we're I think we chatted for a little while beforehand. Uh, I've got an hour and a half on the call, so we'll we'll keep going. We'll finish okay, it up. Cool. It's a long one. We've only got languages and frameworks left. Yeah, but that is a massive list. <laughs> I have a feeling it will cause some discussion. All right, so your top one is JRuby. Ooh, Fine. I love JRuby. 
like, like you know, if you're a Ruby person and if yep. you like the language, JRuby is, is you know, probably really good. Yeah. I love it. I love it. I love having. I love sitting on the JVM. I'm a JVM fanboy. I don't deny it. It's awesome. Me too. You know, and maybe we just quickly jump on um, towards some other JVM stuff that is in that adopt section, just to you know, like um, talk maybe talk about those in one go. Uh, um, closure. Yeah, you've got it in adopt. I've got it in trial. I think that probably has more to do with my experience with it, which is I haven't got any. Um, so. Yeah, I mean, my experience is obviously limited too, right? I've written some smaller things with that. But I think, you know, if you are looking for a functional language on the JVM, Clojure is probably the thing, the go-to thing for me. That's fair enough. I can respect that. And the other thing I put on there in Adopt is Raylo, funny enough, which you probably don't agree with. Because you've put, um, you've put CFML in hold. I actually put Adobe Confusion in hold and Raylo in adopt. And my motivation is I don't think that it's a problem of the CFML language that we are looking at. I think we are looking, you know, we're looking know, at a, Yeah, go on. Go on. Because we can happily, you know, discuss that. That's perfectly fine. It, I think it's a problem of the platform and not of the language. And I think if you are a CFML developer and you're doing CF script and you have lots of, you know, work or lots of applications on that, there's not necessarily a reason to throw that out. And I totally agree, you know, well, like... No, this is where on hold says you recorded. Yeah, exactly. You know, if you've I, got, I mean, look, I work on a legacy ColdFusion system right now. I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, like I do, and I write new code for it. Um, but I still say use with caution. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, putting it in, into Adopt doesn't mean, for me, it doesn't mean like you... That's the only thing you should do. But I would probably Refill say... Refill project? Like if you're like, it's a brand new project, building it from scratch. Is it going on Rala? Some would, yes. Depending really? on what it is. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Right. I think the only thing that would drive me that way is if I was working with a team and there are all CoreFusion developers who didn't know anything else and they had to get it done. I think it totally depends on the actual application. For some greenfield stuff, I would absolutely use Rilo with not a problem at all. In fact, that might happen in the next few weeks for a project where we just put it on Rilo because it's the best option to go go with for that project. Clearly, and it might you know knowing, it might... knowing the details of the project, why is it the best option? Um, one reason is the involved developers. Yeah, okay, that's a big reason. I can respect that's that. That's a big reason. We could do it in, for example, Java with that skill set. And, you know, if I, I wouldn't do it with Java and web technologies, to be honest. That's just like too painful. Um, I personally would be really keen doing it on Django, but I would, I would in that particular group of people be the only person who has like even at least a rough idea of Django and Python. So that is a bit tricky. Um, and from that point of view, CFML is a really nice option because we can get stuff done really quickly. Yeah, you can and get stuff we, done. Yeah. And we probably, we'll probably do it with um, something like Framework 1, so it's even nicely architected. And I don't see a reason why not to do it that way. You know, I, I, yeah. you know there are a bunch of downsides, obviously, because Rilo is in some way monolithic. Yeah, you that's know, my biggest concern. It's, it's a really biggest concern. It's clearly not as bad as Adobe ColdFusion in a lot of ways. Agreed, agreed, agreed. But at, at this stage, you know, Rilo is a monolithic 
thing that runs on Tomcat. And you need to have, or, or, or on a, you know, on a Surfit engine, and you need to have Jetty or Tomcat, which makes it a bit monolithic. Um, well, it's it, monolithic because it's got everything built into it. If you could, if modular, if Rilo was more modular, and I could probably, if anything, what I'd probably rip out most is the, the, like, use it as a templating engine. So if I could rip it out for just simply displaying views, I probably would. Um, I, ERB is not beautiful. Hamel kind of freaks me out, you know. I can yep. do liquid, I can do logicless templates with, like, mustache or handlebars or something like that, but logicless templates, while useful in some ways, are also just a complete pain in the ass. Um, so, yeah, I, I've got no problem with it, but just the monolithic nature, the expressiveness of CFML, I find to be really not great. Now it has closures, it's not bad, but it's not great. Um, and just some of the tooling and the frameworks and the open source stuff is good, but not nearly as expensive as other languages. I agree means, with that, totally. Uh, you know, partic- yeah. Particularly when you look at the, the Ruby community, what people have you know, put yeah. out there in terms of open source libraries and frameworks and tool support, that is just great. I absolutely give you that right away. Yeah. Mm. I, but it's, you I, know, it's always a trade-off, basically. You yeah, know? That's, that's true. I just, yeah, that's why I, I put it in on hold because it's just, um, it, it's, it's like, it's, I, I definitely put it in the use with caution because it's just like, it, you can get, you can get, get I want to say get shit done, because it's, you can, you can get stuff done, <laughs> you know, however you want to put the acronym, but you can, you can do that. Like it, it gets stuff done and that's great. And, you know, if you're used to it, you can run with it and it's great. But I, I sometimes I sit back and I go, well, would I want to be like maintaining this for five years time? So if it's well written, I don't have an issue with that. Uh, yes. Yeah, but you know, are the, is are the tools going to keep going? Are the, is the community going to keep going? Um, there will always be people doing it. Don't get me wrong. Um, but is the is there enough people out there who are excited by it and want to keep growing it? Um, that that makes it sort of an interesting space to sit. Um, but it's an interesting thing. Um, catch up to where a lot of other languages and a lot of stuff where there is momentum and growth going because there's just that many people or that much excitement. Um, stuff we've talked about before. I, oh, it, totally. It's, yeah. it's, um, and the monolithic nature just freaks me out as well, just scaling and whatnot. Now, you can do it. There's obviously cases where people have scaled out Rilo and, and, and Adobe CFML to like huge things. Um, but uh, how, relative to other stuff, I don't know, like... Uh, yeah, it just, I don't, I don't know. I sit down, I write other languages quite often and I, I'm like, I enjoy this language. This is really nice and like it's expressive and it's lovely and it's fun to work with and stuff. And I write CFML and I'm like, I find like, I feel like I'm battling it half the time. Really? I, I don't feel that way actually. I think if you, I, mean, I write a lot of stuff in CF script. Even. And I find, you know, modern CF script is but then it's, I'm writing stuff in script, and I'm like, Jesus, I wish I had tags, because God, a looping around a query in script is a pain. You know, like, stuff like that I hit all the time, and it's like, all right, well, fine, I'll write it in tags. You know, like, just, I get in my own way. Like, I, I find it painful. Yeah, okay, fair enough. That, that, that's okay. I mean, we can have different opinions, obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I just, it's, uh, it's a real, it's a, like, I'd have to have a really good reason. If, like, I had a Greenfield project, I'd be like, like, I just, I, it's... I don't, I don't see anything, like, if I have a Greenfield project, apart from, like, developer availability and people I have on team right now, I don't see anything that's like, oh my god, this is the most compelling thing ever. Do you know what I mean? It's nothing, yep. 
that makes me jump at it and say this is awesome. Like if I'm writing, um, you know, something that just has to have, you know, uh, non-blocking code because it's highly like doing I'm like a whole bunch of network connectivity, then I'm going to look at Node, I'm going to look at Twisted Python, I'm going to look at Vertex, um, you know, stuff like that. I'm going to look at anything that's basically non-blocking I/O. If I want to do something that's highly concurrent, I'm probably going to look at something functional like Clojure or or Scala or half a dozen other things along those lines because that just fits that niche perfectly. If I'm, you know, like I, if if I had to go say like what's the big win out of using CFML, I, I'm struggle. I struggle, unless I'm doing like massive PDF stuff, and then I'm like I'm buying one enterprise license, sticking it in a box, and hooking a bunch of web services up to it. <laughs> right? Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Okay. There's my rant. Blah. <laughs> okay. So, so all the other or most of the other stuff in this section here in Adopt is in some way related to JavaScript, isn't it? Uh, uh, actually, mostly, mostly. Yeah, so there is JavaScript in general, fine. There's well, AngularJS, which we both agree on too. So, actually, here's the interesting thing. We're talking JavaScript, we're saying adopt. Are you saying JavaScript both client-side, back-end-side? Because we could probably be more specific about that. Uh, that's a fair point. I I actually use... Or I, even, even I, like, desktop-side, like, tools like Runt and stuff. I don't use JavaScript much server-side. I dabble around with Node.js, yeah. um, yeah. but I haven't yeah. done anything, you know, that ever went to production with Node.js. And I'm not quite sure if, if Node.js is a really awesome, great solution. And I have, I have kind of my reservations about that because sometimes I feel like when I, for example, look at, you know, you have to do database calls asynchronously, you think like, nah, that just feels weird, really, in some way. Um, mm, but it's good business cons. But yeah. Yeah, you know, I agree. And I, I remember, I have done that in the past with, um, Adobe Air years ago and mm-hmm. then having like SQL Lite built into Air and having to deal like asyn- with asynchronous SQL calls and it, it always feels weird to me um, and obviously Node.js I mean a lot of people are just jumping on it right away because it's JavaScript and you can That's do cool. JavaScript on the server and on the client and it's so cool yeah, let, let's see how that ends up in the long run I think I, I, to be honest my I, I have I have JavaScript in Adopt because well, you kind of have to. <laughs> like, it, you don't really have a choice. I have a lot of misgivings about JavaScript as a language. Um, that, that, like, just the way it is and how it's constructed, and like, it's just it feels kind of kludgy. Um, and and the seventeen different ways you can do objects and like, yeah, I don't know. It just it just feels like every time I go looking for something, I'm like, oh, I don't really have it. Uh, I need to go do something else and. It just, I've never hit my sweet spot when it came to JavaScript. You know, I'm like, I'm really comfortable in what I'm doing and how it's working and all that sort of stuff. But there are definitely things that make it better. Um, we both have AngularJS on there. I love Angular. I think it's awesome. Yeah. Um, but it's just, yeah, I, maybe I just haven't hit that right sweet spot of, of having the right tools to be able to create, you know, the libraries I need to bring in everything, all the little bits and pieces. And JavaScript kind of feels like that when you when you're working with it. Like you kind of like I need this little thing over here, and this little thing over here, and this little thing over here, and this little thing over here. And now I've got 17 little things, and they're all together. My my um, main problem with JavaScript is that it moves so quickly currently that you you know you look at a library or into some approach how you would do something, and then you know you go away. Two weeks later, you look at the same thing again. You think like. Oh, this framework is new, and this is has dramatically tr- yeah. changed all of a sudden from what it was yeah. two weeks ago. It's like, well, Node's yeah. very young, so that's that's I mean that's going to happen, you know. And and there's a lot oh, of totally. development yeah. in the JavaScript space, and I think that's kind of the joy of it, but probably some of the frustrating things about it too. 
Yeah, but I mean, anyway, JavaScript as a language, you know, as maybe the universal language for doing a lot of web stuff is definitely on on the way, you know, and you need to know JavaScript nowadays. Actually, interesting one. Neither you or I have done anything, have put in anything on here like CoffeeScript or ClojureScript or... Actually, I saw a Haskell one the other day too, but... <laughs> yeah, I, I've never really got deeper into ClojureScript. It looks quite interesting, and I saw a talk on ClojureScript um, a while ago. But I just didn't have the time to look. Yeah, I've not really looked into any of the, uh, really that deeply into any of the, uh, the JavaScript sort of. And I've got, like, for, for, for probably two years, a, um, like one of those quick start books from SitePoint on CoffeeScript sitting somewhere on my hard drive, which I bought, like, for $5. And I thought, oh, I always want to have a look into that and never get around to. I think my biggest concern with that stuff is more, um, I don't know, does Google, I know Chrome was talking about doing source maps. So if you're compiling to ClojureScript and something goes wrong and you get an error back, it's much easier to work out where it's coming from because it maps to the JavaScript back up mm-hmm. to your CoffeeScript. Mm-hmm. Um, if that actually, I don't know if that exists yet. I know they've been talking about it. If it does, if anyone's listening and wants to point me in the right direction, um, if that actually existed, I'd probably be more interested in going down that road and seeing what that sort of stuff works like. Um, but also the integration points. I've seen so many things where people are like, I'm writing CoffeeScript and I want to use Angular. How the hell do I do it? It doesn't work. You know, you're trying to shoehorn two things together. That it, yeah. It's was, painful. Yeah, quite a while ago, there was actually an issue with um, AngularJS and some jQuery mobile stuff. And that oh, yeah. drove me nuts, you know, to get that working. And then some, I found a blog post by someone who basically you know, described a way how to get around those issues. But that's really tricky sometimes if you have JavaScript libraries that do different things made by different people yeah. and in some way use the best of both of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I think in general, we've got a point in there, you know, that, that says JavaScript module loaders and JavaScript UI frameworks. I, I, I put both of them in there because I find... You know, using various frameworks makes it really much, much nicer. You know, like the Sentai UI components or Kendo UI. I was doing, or I'm actually still doing a mobile, um, a mobile app with JavaScript and HTML using Kendo UI mobile and RequireJS. And that is so beautiful. It ties into each other so nicely. It's just like, you know, beauty, beautiful thing to work on. I think you do more mobile on front end stuff than I do, which probably got a lot to do with it. Yeah, probably. I've got I've got like JavaScript module loaders like RequireJS, which we were just talking about. Like I've got that more in assess because I don't really do this very often. Um, so it's something I need to look at more. Um, the JavaScript I've got Java. I mean, this is assess we were talking about before. Like the JavaScript component stuff that looks really interesting for me. I didn't even, didn't even have a look into that yet. Let me just open that link. That's uh, I think you'll find that interesting. I think that came out of Twitter. I want to say. Um, so think of it, it's like a, it's like package, a management. package okay. management for client side. Um, I think it's client side. I want to say client side. Um, uh, JavaScript tool. So you can really start pulling like really small bits together. Um, it's okay. interesting. So if you're like, I don't need all of jQuery, I just want little bits. Then you can start just pulling those little bits out of component libraries and then hooking up the bits you want. Sort of build your own package system your own sort of dev framework in, in a lot of ways. and It's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. It's a really I'm just interesting. just looking at the yeah. GitHub page, so just glancing over it, it looks definitely interesting. Yeah. Um, is any is there anything out there actually with 
regards to JavaScript and OSGI? Are people doing anything with that? I don't know anything about OSGI. Because OSGI is like a usually a reasonably nice way of you know modularizing your components and applications and things like that in in the Java world. And given that I don't know, a lot of client-side development hooks into Java backends. I would have expected something to be out there. Let me just Google that. JavaScript and OSGI. Um, Indeed. People have done talks on at EclipseCon. So there's definitely something going on. I have no idea how those two technologies work together. Yeah, me neither. But there's definitely something happening. Interesting. Okay. Okay. Um, So moving back up to the top, back into our Adopt stuff. Uh, yeah, what else do we have in here? D3 and NVD3. I don't know NVD3, but D3 is like a com- charting, well, graphing you know, library. I, I would say D3 is not charting and graphing. D3 is about visualization. It's data. Yeah, okay. fair, fair enough. Yeah, okay. NVD3 is actually charting based on D3. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. Which is why I really like it. Yeah, D3 is gorgeous, and I think it's amazing. And um, I was doing some reading on it. It's basically this guy doing his PhD on data visualization. So he wrote this whole framework for it. It's awesome. It's crazy awesome. Um, and NVD3, if you're looking at doing charting with JavaScript, it's beautiful. So it just makes some beautiful, beautiful graphs and charts. Um, then we've got less in there, and probably SAS and all that. Those things tie yeah. into the same into the same um, thing. I've used less. I like less. Um, SAS has got some good stuff going for it too. So it's essentially you know management of CSS and makes make CSS bearable for developers. Really. Yes. That's yeah. what it comes down to. Yes. I ended up having an argument, I remember. Were you there? Who was I having an argument with at some moment? Um, at Strange Loop last year, where I was saying that uh, my, my my thinking about CSS is the problem with CSS is it has no competitors. <laughs> um, which means it hasn't it doesn't have to it doesn't have to innovate, it doesn't have to really do a whole lot because it's a monopoly essentially on the villa. Um, the only thing it was really competing with was Flash and uh, um, sort of very different spaces, but um yeah, actually, that's sort of I find that as a struggle. So things like less than SAS, I think, are just going to end up being necessary because, yeah, like, CSS is okay. I have issues with it. Have um, you? Did you actually see that um, there is a new framework in the you know JavaScript CSS world out there that is kind of driven by um, Michael Riola? Oh, is that? Um, I forgot the name of the framework, but oh, there was I know exactly a- what you're talking about. Yeah. So that looks quite interesting because I have the idea, and you know, like this is just like me guessing that it brings back a lot of the of, of flex architecture concepts, how you do UI and you know, like well, with components. You know, well, and, well, Angular is very flexy in a lot of ways. Uh, Angular is very flexy, but um, I have a feeling that that stuff might is. Is Tandori it? Is that the one you? Yes, to? exactly. Yeah. yeah. So I think that is something we should probably put into assess at least, because for all those people who come from that flash flex world and got sort of thrown into, oh, I have to do native HTML and JavaScript and CSS now, that could be an interesting thing to look at, I guess. Or Angular. Or Angular. But Angular doesn't have, like, UI components, right? And I think that new framework has some concept of UI components. Okay. Yeah, I think it does. Okay. I might be wrong. I haven't looked at it at all. I've seen it mentioned in a few places. Yeah, me too. And I saw a few like, um, you know, like community presentations or user group presentations popping up here and there where yep. people talked about that. 
So you've also got now, stepping away from the JavaScript for a minute, um, and then adopt, I think the last one we were going to talk about pretty much is Python. Yeah, because I really start to like Python more and more. Yeah. And I think it's, it's obviously quite mature, right? So, yes. Um, Python is out there for, I don't know, how many years? 10, 15? Something I would, like that. Yeah, who knows? I wouldn't even know. I mean, probably more than 10. Um, Python 3 is out there for quite a bit now, even though there are still issues with certain libraries not being up to scratch on Python mm-hmm. 3 or not working at all. Um, but that is getting there. You know, at PyCon in Australia, there was a big push to, towards members of the community to help convert things to Python 3. So I yeah. think um, a similar push happened at PyCon in, in the US. Yeah, so and much I, stuff seems to run on 2.x. I don't, like, either desktop stuff. I think Ansible runs pretty much on 2.x. Um, yeah, 2.7. Whatever it dot is, yeah. I think it's the latest one on, on the 2.7 branch. And I think it really depends on what what you're, what you're, what you're doing. That de- kind of decides what library or what version of Python you're going yeah. with now. Nowadays. Makes sense. So, for example, if you were to do like a Django-based web thing, mm. you can pretty much do most of it on Python 3 nowadays. So, Django works on Python 3.3. That's fine. There are a few Django-related packages, um, and if you want to use some of those to basically, you know, just make your life easier and quicker, then I think you can't yet. Like, there are some libraries related to like I don't know SEO stuff or you know. OAuth and integrating with those social services. Mm. That some stuff doesn't work yet. But if you are happy to code that manually, then obviously you're fine. You know, like it's mm. just those pre-made libraries that don't work yet. For other stuff, I went to a talk at PyCon about um, using Python for scientific projects and for scientific. Oh yeah, yeah. I think there's a analysis. huge there's a huge um, community of those from yeah, it's massive i didn't even know yeah. you know and yeah because i think they have really good scientific libraries and math libraries that are yeah there's really numpy and yeah I, I knew numpy was there that interested me just for my math background but yep. i wasn't aware of you know what you could do with scipy which is really awesome and some of that stuff has been converted to python 3 as well nicely yep and there was i was in one specific talk like a 90 minute session where the presenter went through a whole bunch of the libraries and basically put together a SciPy-based environment using for interactive scientific... Um, Say that again. And then he said... Kai, can you say that again? You just broke up really badly. Oh, I broke up. Sorry. Um, So I went to a talk at PyCon where the presenter went through the process of building a Python 3-based SciPy environment. Yep. He used work all those interactive tools um, to basically allow for interactive data analysis, where you can basically run Python code on the fly in your notebook web, web page and do all sorts of, sort of crazy nice stuff. And he managed to do it mainly with Python 3, but he had to, you know, change from a few libraries he would rather use to some others that do kind of a similar thing to make it work. But it's, I think it's getting there. You know, it's definitely yeah. getting there. No, actually, it's funny. Um, just doing some hacking on Ansible. Um, there we go. Oh, yeah, Python's not bad. It's got some nice stuff in it. You know, it's got, it's got good list comprehension. It's got good Lambda support. You know, it's that's pretty neat, and it's all kind of built in quite nicely. The, the, the um, Python package manager is nice. You know, there's a lot of neat stuff in there. 
Yeah, what I'm going to do with Python, I mean, I'm, I'm dabbling with some project that uses the Google AdWords API currently. Yeah. And I have to just find a nice way of how to integrate that with other stuff that has to, that it has to tie in with. But what I want to do it, do it privately for is actually my Philips U lights. I've got those Philips U Wi-Fi controllable color lights. Oh yeah. That you, that you basically, you know, can use to create like mood lights and stuff like that. So you push a button and it's like dun 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 dun. Yeah, the exactly. The ball comes down, red lights come up. Yeah, exactly. Barry Manilow's playing in the background. Oh, come on. <laughs> really? Um, no, but it, it's actually a quite nice technology in, in general, but I have massive issues with getting our house basically wired up to their weird portal. And the Philips U portal is really badly done. If you want to, you know, access your lighting system from, from the web, essentially. Yeah. So, um, I, found that server platform that runs on Python, actually, that allows you to um, hook your lights into a, re- a local server and you can drive everything yourself. And I can expose all the services I want to through my own little environment. So I basically ordered a Raspberry Pi yeah, oh, on Friday. <laughs> and I'll put, yeah, I'll run that server on, on Python, on the Raspberry Pi, and just expose whatever I want through my, through my IP address at home. Okay. All right. Let's move forward because we've been talking for ages. Oh yeah, we do. We've only got a few more, few more sections to go through. So, yeah. a few things in trial here. Um, talk through them real quick. Uh, the top ones, ones I've been looking at for a little while now, uh, and I talked about it just a little bit before. Vertex. Uh, Vertex is actually. Sorry. I've got that actually in assess. Oh, do you? Yep. Okay, yeah, yeah. Vertex is really interesting. I've had my eye on that for a little while. So for people who aren't aware of it, it's a polyglot non-blocking framework for the JVM. So it's a non-blocking framework um, for the for the JVM that runs so Python through Jython, JavaScript through Rhino, uh, Ruby through JRuby. Uh, there's a Scala. I've seen a Scala branch for the new one. Um, Closure support, they've been talking about it for ages, but I haven't seen anyone work on it. Uh, obviously, you can write straight Java as well. Uh, I think that's all it's covered. Um, but it's pretty neat. Yeah, I came across it when I was looking at Node.js, and then right. someone mentioned that essentially with Vertex, you can do JavaScript on the JVM, and it's kind of following a very similar approach to Node.js, so I just yeah. had a quick look at it, and that's why it's in Assess. Yeah, I was, yeah. I was looking at it, because um, I was was non-blocking, you can have a lot of concurrent connections off to other services and whatnot. Um, but I didn't want to skip away from the JVM because I love the JVM. Um, and started looking, and, and um, I've forgotten the URL. There's a website that started talking about uh, framework comparisons, like large-scale framework comparisons. Um, and I saw Vertex pop up there, and I was like, oh, yeah, I remember that thing. That came out a while ago. And so I started looking into it, and I was like, I reckon this would actually be an awesome, awesome fit for when I want non-blocking stuff um, so I don't have to write my own non-blocking codes and all that stuff. It's, it, I think it's still quite young, um, but if you have that need, I think it's it's looking pretty cool. Yep, I, I agree. Then we've got Clojure in there. We talked about Clojure already. Yeah, um, uh, yeah. you've got Jython in there. i got Jython in there, and it's kind of... The reason why Jython is in trial and Python is in like um, in adopt is P- Jython is unfortunately understuffed. <laughs> That's yeah, what I've seen. I've it. seen yeah. It's there's not, not enough people contributing to it, and it seems that most Python stuff is going on actually is on C Python and not on JVM Python, and it's quite sad because I would like you know Jython to be. 
Isn't on there also um, PyPy, which is Python on Python? Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So I mean, yeah, I would like Jason to be a bit more, you know, prominent and better supported. But that's that's what it is, really, and that's why it's on trial. I need to to figure out what the limitations are and yep. you know what I can do with it and what I can't do with it. And the other thing I put into trial in general is functional concepts because I think um, a lot of organizations, a lot of people don't really know yet what functional concepts are and what give what mm-hmm. they can get from that. So that's yeah. why they should put it into look into it. And maybe for some people it should be in a set. Maybe. Yeah, I can see that. Functional languages and the functional paradigm. As long as it's around for long enough, clearly, historically, and it has had quite a bit of a comeback over the last three, four years that people should feel comfortable to do stuff with it. Yeah. I think a lot of people probably are using functional concepts, especially if they're using any sort of closure or callback support without really realizing it. Um, yeah. Maybe yeah, not to the nth degree where it's purely functional, but I think, you know, a lot of times you kind of come to it and you're like, oh, yeah, this is pretty cool. But, um, yeah, I mean, doing, like, I did a day-long closure course probably last year, actually, and that when I actually started writing more actual code, it sort of was like, okay, I really do need to think about this differently because I don't really have state and I can't rely on it, and that makes you think in some very interesting ways. <laughs> yep. Um, okay, so then, okay, so kicking in through to assess, I think pretty much the only things we haven't actually talked about here is I've thrown underscore JS and sugar JS on here. Um, I think those are pretty much there as libraries for me to look at, um, pretty much because of what I was complaining about before, which is I keep finding stuff I can't get to or I can't do in JavaScript. Mm-hmm. You know, I'll be like, oh, I want, I just want to ray and, re- you know, like map and reduce or something like that, which is in most browsers, but not all, so I need a library. Um, SugarJS has got some nice string and, and sort of date, date formatting sort of extensions that I'm always looking for. So little things like that are actually quite nice. But having said that, looking at like the components framework um, that we were talking about before, that might take some of the edge off that for me as well, being able to just pick and choose the bits I need and quite easily integrate them. Yeah, It probably kills a lot of the pain that I probably have with JavaScript right now. Okay. And what else do we have in there? Uh, the vertex we talked about and the generic JavaScript stuff we talked about as well. Yeah. And then in hold, we've, you've got, you've put it in CFML, I've put it in Adobe Cold Fusion, and I yep. think we covered that as well, pretty much. Yeah. So that's pretty much everything. Ha! Cool. Just took us one and a half hours to go through the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, it's a good one. It's a good one. And for some interesting discussion. Yep, I agree. So, feel free, everyone, to leave comments in the, um, in the, in the blog post. Could be quite interesting to get some discussion going on that. I'm exhausted, yeah. actually. Are you tired now? It's time for a yeah. nap. Little nap, I, need nap. A, I need to have. It's, it's like two o'clock. It's time for a nap anyway. I need to get some cake and tea and have enough. Yeah, afternoon. I think. Uh, I think. Uh, what should we call it? Uh, I think my wife came in earlier and she's like, "When are you finishing? We need to go have afternoon tea." Oh, <laughs> oh see, that's nice. I think that's what she was telling me. Yeah, I'm wifeless at the moment, actually. I'm <sighs> Uh, should I say you poor thing? I don't know. What's the appropriate response? Here? No, my poor, the, your, your poor thing is right, actually, because it's, it's, it's beyond that stage now where it's easy to deal with. You know, like for, usually when I'm away for a week, it's like, it's fine. You know, you can actually keep yourself busy doing some crazy stuff. Yeah. But now it's like nearly two weeks and Diana is coming over, uh, next weekend to the Gold yeah. Coast for a long weekend. So it's another four days to go. It's like, ah, oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. You know. I could do a long weekend now, actually. 
Fair enough. So yeah, that's my you know, I get some hopefully get some sympathy from people who listen to that. Fair enough. Cool. All right, so all right, let's wrap this up. Um, usual contact stuff. Uh, the usual contact stuff. So blockinblack.de is my website or Twitter agent K is probably the nicest way to get hold of me. Um, or just ping me on Skype if you really need to. I might respond to that as well. That works. Uh, Twitter, neurotic, uh, compoundtheory.com, which hopefully will get replaced with a whole new website, which, uh, actually I've been putting together with WordPress and Ansible and Vagrant. Um, WordPress. Ooh. You're yeah. Showing- PHP territory, sorry. No, oh, whatever, it's just easy. Um, yeah, I, I couldn't find anything better, and I wanted to be able to have control over it, so it just was an easy option. Um, and, yeah, so Compound Theory, Neurotic on Twitter. Uh, if you want to catch me on IRC, um, I'm using a great service now called IRC Cloud, which I really like, which is uh, people should check out. Um, but you can catch, find me on in Freenode and ColdFusion and uh, Ruby Channels, and you probably find me anywhere. As, as I think it's Square Brackets Neurotic, Square Brackets. Um, I'm pretty much all over the shop, um, and download ColdFusion, and I'm generally all around the place. Cool. Awesome. Alrighty, it was a pleasure to do this. And, all right. Um, yeah, we should do another one of those in like six months or twelve months, and you know, see what has changed. See what happens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Alrighty. Cool. Bye, bye.